Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, evidence-informed, practical-based. It's season two, episode number 36, and I'm delighted again today to be sitting down with another world expert, physiologist and researcher, another man who's worked numerous Olympic games and helped countless elite and Olympic athletes, Dr. Trent Stellingworth is on the show. In this episode, Trent will share his thoughts and insights on Ilya Kuchogi's recent world record-breaking performance at the Berlin Marathon and how an athlete like Kipchoge fuels during a race, as well as novel applications of glycogen availability and carbohydrate availability as training regulators. Tripp will also discuss the concept of body composition periodization from his own research on a nine-year case study of an Olympic-level athlete. How does body composition periodization impact athlete performance, injury risk, illness, Trent will answer all of these questions. He also shares the targets he used for daily caloric reductions and weekly weight loss targets. And for those who work with recreational runners, Trent will also discuss the nuances in fueling tactics depending on your client's goals, if it is weight loss and improving health along with getting fitter. Tons of great stuff here from uh, Trent. Fantastic insights uh, from a world leader in endurance performance. So, I hope you're taking notes at home, and if you do get a chance, then definitely, definitely read the case study discussed here um, in more depth because it will definitely help to inform your practice. You can link to the research paper discussed here at drbubs.com forward slash podcast, and if you're interested in more on this topic of endurance performance, then be sure to circle back to season one, episode 27 with Professor Paul Larson and Dr. Daniel Plews for triathletes and Ironman competitors. Season one, episode 38 for female endurance athletes with Dr. Tamsin Lewis. And season two, episode number five on hydration with Dr. Stavros Kavouros. All right, new listeners, thanks for jumping on board. If you enjoy this episode, then please make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any of the phenomenal guests we have coming up this fall. You can subscribe on YouTube, iTunes, or any of your favorite pod catchers. Okay, let's get rolling. Season two, episode 36. Enjoy. My guest today is Dr. Trent Stellingworth, PhD, the director of the Innovation and Research Division at the Canadian Sport Institute Pacific. An experienced researcher, Trent has more than 40 peer-reviewed scientific publications and is currently on the editorial board for the International Journal of Sports Physiology and Performance and the International Journal of Sports Nutrition and Exercise Metabolism. He has co-authored six book chapters focusing on the role that nutrition can play in supporting elite athlete performance, including a chapter on nutrition for the endurance athlete for the newest version of the 2013 IOC Sports Nutrition Encyclopedia. Trent has attended numerous world championships and Olympic Games as part of Team Canada's integrated support team and consults with several Olympic athletes from around the world, including his wife Hillary, who competed for Canada in the 1500 meter at the 2012 Games. Trent, really appreciate you carving out the time today. Thanks for having me on, Mark. Terrific. Well, listen, can we maybe start by sharing with listeners uh, a little more about how you first got interested uh, in research and endurance sport and your journey to uh, CSI Pacific? Yeah, well, so in high school, I was a track and field athlete and uh, was was blessed to run decently well in circles and, and got a scholarship option to the U.S. and and there at uh, Cornell University, I, I majored in nutrition and minored in exercise science. And I think that the passion and link that I saw then at Cornell already in studying something that can directly impact, um, at least initially, my own performance and then others' performance was um, was just completely natural to me and uh, worthwhile to pursue. So uh, out of that, I did a master's and PhD at the University of Guelph and then a postdoc in research at, at Maastricht University in the Netherlands and with Luke Van Loon in protein research. Um, and then for five years, I was the uh, 
science, innovation, um, and research lead for Power Bar in Lausanne, Switzerland. Uh, it was a, it was a Nestle um, brand. Um, they've since sold. And then throughout that whole time, my wife was an international level runner, and I was involved with endurance sports still. And then a job opened up here in uh, 2011 at the Canadian Sport Institute uh, Pacific. So I, I live here in Victoria, Canada, and and we made the move back to Canada. Um, both my wife and I were uh, born and raised in Ontario, uh, near Sarnia, Ontario, and 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 now uh, bought a house and we have a family and we've we've settled here in Victoria. So a long answer, but um, maybe some context for the uh, listener to appreciate um, my own journey. Absolutely, and uh, Victoria, a pretty nice place to settle as well. So looks like things turning out well there. Now. We're going to talk endurance training here, fueling, and body composition. Um, but before we do. Uh, History was made this past weekend at the Berlin Marathon, uh, and Trent, I caught a, a tweet you sent out last week about uh, sort of comparing the Berlin Marathon, or at least saying you're going to stay up to watch it, and comparing it to the Super Bowl for marathoners. Um, and then, of course, uh, Ilya Kipchoge's, you know, sets the world record, phenomenal performance, perhaps the greatest for men's marathon. You know, so for you, you know, as a fan, as a sports scientist, what was that what, like watching all that unfold? Yeah, it was pretty uh mind-blowing um even even someone who knows the intimate specifics of the event and is in contact with some of the people that that work with Kipchoge and and knowing that he was on form and then you know three days out seeing the weather which can be a huge impact on marathon performance and seeing it looked pretty much uh perfect maybe it was one or two degrees too warm but it it was really good you knew he was lined up for something special um, I didn't think it would be that special, especially when his uh, two two rabbits had uh, dropped out by 15K and his third rabbit only got to 26K. So basically the last 17K or 10 miles of the race, he was completely isolated and alone. And it was in that period he actually accelerated. Um, yeah, if you w- look at my Twitter feed, you can kind of see my emotions. I, w- I was worried he was overcooking it <laughs> in the middle. He, he was being too aggressive. I, you know, I, I even wrote patience, patience, because... Marathoning doesn't really begin till 30k into the race, 32k into the race. But obviously, he's done a bunch of these. He knows his body. He knew the form he was in because he just continued to accelerate all the way to the finish line. Um, I actually think it was slightly better than his uh, breaking two performance, where he went two hours and 25 seconds. Now that was a contrived environment and did not count for a world record because they had rabbits go in and out. Yeah. Um, and they had uh, actually uh, mopeds give him his bottles like on the fly. And that's also against the IAAF rules. You, you have to take them from a table. So there are were, there were two instances there where it didn't count. But I actually think his, uh, his, his 201.39 is, is better than that, that performance uh, in, in breaking two. It, it was truly mind-blowing. Um, uh, I, I thought he would break the record. Um, I didn't think – I certainly did not think he would break uh, 202. So – uh, here we are, and we're in a new era. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, that four minute thirty eight per mile. I mean, how how freakish is that pace, really? It's sixty nine seconds a lap, and there's very few people that can run it one lap on the track in sixty nine seconds. It's 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 phenomenal. Um, my wife's retired now. She's a two time Olympian. She's a middle distance runner, and uh, in her peak, she you know, she couldn't do three kilometers at that pace and he's going 42.2. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's just hard to wrap your head around that. Uh, his, his last half marathon was 60 minutes and 38 seconds or something like that, which is well under the Canadian record for the half marathon. So wow. and he's just running that off the back end. Right. Um, yeah, so it, it is, um, it is pretty phenomenal. And how much of that is the new shoes that they launched a year and a half ago? How much of that is, um, optimizing fueling how much of that is an incredible training program bits of it have been released i've certainly analyzed his training program how much of it is 10 years or 15 years of just consistent training which which he does he's rarely gotten injured if at all and then finally i think a huge confounding factor is his just unbelievable belief in himself his mindset is phenomenal and i i do think um his ability and what he did for that breaking two attempt, that almost breaking two attempt, brought his headspace to a whole other um, spot where now he can go out in 61 minutes flat, and it's it's not crazy. It's uh, I'm going to attack this off the back end uh, rather than being 
mentally um, scared of, of that, those types of early splits. Yeah, it's incredible, all those different factors. And, of course, the mindset, as you mentioned, just being just a huge part of that. And um, dovetails into my next question for you about fueling for elite endurance athletes. And you know, maybe you can get listeners all on the same page here and do a sort of a quick physiology review. You know, for an athlete like Kipchoge or in that rank, you know, what, what's the primary fuel that they're using during a race and what would a fueling strategy look like for them? Yeah, no, uh, for sure. There's a lot of um, misconceptions in, uh, in this space, and a lot of it has to do with the limited character count you have on Twitter and how pretty much nothing in life is black and white. It's always on shades of gray, and the context is so important. Um, and and th- so that said, you know, are the elite of the elites, the, the, these guys like Kipchoge and read cool sets of the world, they are running so fast that their primary fuel of what they're using is carbohydrate. Um, to the point that uh, they can run close to uh, 90% of VO2 max for that two hours or, or two hours and 10 minutes. Um, your recreational athletes who do a four-hour marathon are running more around 50 to 60% of VO2 max. And in those situations, they are using much more fat and fat oxidation as a fuel. But in the elites, it is almost exclusively carbohydrate oxidation that fuels the entire marathon. And of course, the marathon is one of the longest events in the Olympics. And so all all events and sports under that are, are definitely um, carbohydrate um, dependent. There's another value of being carbohydrate dependent is that it is slightly more efficient. Um, you use slightly less oxygen um, breathing in oxygen that is to oxidize um, carbohydrate than you do to oxidize fat and although it's only a percentage points difference um, very small shifts towards carbohydrate oxidation um, theoretically can give you know one to two minute improvements in performance so um, yes endurance training is important a byproduct of endurance training is increased mitochondria and a byproduct of that is these athletes are indeed very good at fat oxidation um but it's a byproduct that the key on race day is to really uh, in these elite of the elites maximize carb oxidation all the way through so they'll have a hard high carb breakfast a high carb meal the night before and then they will um they will fuel throughout the entire marathon um Kipchoge took bottles every single aid station. He bobbled one bottle at the uh, 40 kilometer aid station. I noticed that, but he was close enough to home with 2K to go. It probably didn't bother him. I know he uses uh, Morton, um, a sports uh, drink company um, out of Scandinavia um, that supposedly has new technology to even deliver more carbohydrate per hour than your regular sports drinks. Interesting. Um, or so they claim. Um, yep. I've yet to see a peer-reviewed publication on it, but their their claim is that they use a glucose fructose blend, which which most of the uh, sports drinks do, because uh, there's separate intestinal transporters for glucose and fructose, so you can you can take on more and have less GI upset. But but they also claim that they use an encapsulation method, in that um, uh, by encapsulating the carbohydrate, you're able to get it um, through the stomach and into the intestine. Um, at higher rates and um, at higher concentrations without causing GI side effects. So it's intriguing. It's theoretically pl- plausible. Um, I, but in anything in life, I'm, I'm, I'm ultra interested, but also um, always cautious until I see the uh, scientific evidence. Uh, that said, I do know uh, a lot of athletes that have, have used Morton, swear by uh, that it works pretty well. Um, and and I know Kipchoge used it to fuel his uh, his marathons attempts, both for the uh, Nike Breaking Two, uh, as well as uh, yesterday in Berlin. So, hopefully, that gives a little bit of yeah Definitely. rationale, background, and and an understanding as as to why these the elite of the elites do try to um, maximize this this part of their fueling program. And in terms of that uh, nuance trend between sort of that competition nutrition versus training day nutrition you know the role of glycogen availability as a training regulator has definitely increased over the last decade so you know for someone like Kipchoge um, you know what would that potentially look like during various training blocks would would elite endurance athletes like himself be you know using targeted training sessions with lower carb availability to help with any training adaptations or where are we at there yeah so historically 10 plus 15 years ago 
your sport nutrition consensus statements were all about maximizing carbs for everything. Um, the last few consensus statements, and certainly the best experts in the field, do not support that. Everything is about the context of the situation and what you're looking to benefit and get out of it. Uh, certainly in my two marathons, when I was training for marathons, I just generally in my diet, I ate a lot more carbs. Um, now I'm lucky to get out for two or three runs a week with two young boys <laughs> and, sure. and I eat way less carbs. I, I, I just dial it back. Um, but that, that doesn't, uh, so I'm not anti or, or, or pro carbs. I'm all about the, the right amount for the right context and the right situation. Absolutely. So what's, uh, what's come out of that is the idea that for training, just like when you go to altitude and you limit oxygen, um, there's time in, in training when you can manipulate your diet to have training bouts where muscle glycogen might actually be low at the start of the uh, training bout. Or you wake up in the morning and you just have a cup of coffee and you go out the door on a faster training bout. In both of those situations, uh, you, you know you might take the same number of minutes of training, but you've done that under a lower carbohydrate environment. And there's a whole host of studies out now with muscle biopsies and molecular biology showing that for the endurance phenotype, that uh, stress that you get from training with low carbohydrate uh, may increase the training adaptation you get, may stimulate more mitochondria to be made, may stimulate more capillaries to be, to, to be made um, as, as two really important outcomes, uh, may also stimulate the carbohydrate transporters and uptake mechanisms. Um, you certainly still race on race day with high carb. You may do very specific high intensity sessions with high carb, but periodically, uh, throughout the training, um, uh, program, maybe two or three times a week, you might purposely include uh, low carbohydrate sessions. So it's, it's not chronically low. It's just periodically and strategically low carb, um, now, when you really dig into the literature, I, I think the training adaptation and biopsy data is pretty consistent. Yes, low-carbohydrate availability training increases markers of adaptation. But showing increases in markers of adaptation um, despite biopsies and molecular biology um, it tends to be easier than showing uh, improved performance. Gotcha. And so the, the performance data is, is more equivocal. Um, it's not as consistent. And part of that might be if you try to control, uh, if you have a diet that has a three or four week training block and you try to control the nutrition for three or four weeks, it is insane to try and do that in a study. The amount of work that you need to do is, is quite phenomenal. And during that four weeks, you might only have three or four low carb training sessions per week. So you're only looking at the impact of maybe 10 or 15 low carb sessions in your study design, despite a mountain of, of work. And so it, it is really quite challenging to try and prove some of those outcomes. Um, but at least as a theoretical basis, it has pretty strong underpinnings. Um, I've used it strategically with different athletes that I've worked with. Um, and at least there anecdotally, the feedback has been, has been positive. Um, I don't know if Kipchoge, uh, strategically, uh, uh, uses uh, low carbohydrate availability training, but uh, I, uh, my, my wife spent time in Africa. Um, we certainly know a fair amount about the African training, and there is a cultural context of them doing a lot of morning fasted runs. They'll get up, they'll they'll knock out a thirty k run off a uh, cup of tea, and then they'll come home and breakfast and have breakfast. Wow. Uh, furthermore, when they're running two hundred to two hundred and forty kilometers a week. With marathon-specific sessions at altitude, which altitude increases your glycogen utilization, and they'll, they'll have marathon-specific sessions of 30 to 40 kilometers in duration, there's no doubt with that type of training program that there, there is a large majority of it being done at low carbohydrate availability because they're just they're running so much, they can't eat enough carbs, and and they're doing doubles and triples. And, and, and so whether it's strategic or whether it's just a product of uh, – of the insane training program, I'm I'm not sure. Yeah, it's fascinating, fascinating stuff. I mean, uh, um, so many different factors at play there, and it sort of leads into my my next question for you around the nutritional periodization, and of course the concept of body composition periodization, which you know yourself you studied in the case study 
um, body composition periodization in Olympic level female middle distance runners over a nine year career. Um, can you tell folks a little bit about how this project came about? And then maybe we can define uh, body composition periodization as well. Yeah, you bet. So um, actually, just before the Skype, I was, I was working on a draft uh, review paper that'll come out in the coming months and uh, on a nutrition periodization framework. And it's it's being uh, written by myself, um, Dr. James Morton uh, at a Liverpool University who's uh, Team Skies lead nutritionist, and then Louise Burke out of the Australian Institute of Sports. So so stay tuned. We'll, we're going to try and develop a, a macro, a meso, and a micro framework to allow um, you know professionals in this field um, to ask the right types of questions on, on what this might look like. Fantastic. Um, so within the meso periodization of nutrition, uh, meso being weeks to months, um, certainly, or excuse me, macro periodization being weeks to months, excuse me. Uh, body composition periodization certainly falls uh, into that space. Um, I did have a tweet earlier this week uh, around a hierarchy of body composition and body composition periodization. Um, I personally think that this should only be attempted and discussed in the elite of the elite athletes who whose nutrition skills and expertise are also elite for an athlete. There's so many other um, things that uh, developing athletes, junior athletes, uh, can focus on before thinking and discussing body composition and body weight um, or any of these other uh, constructs as it might actually lead them down a pretty um, poor path around belief effects and body image and, and eating disorders and disordered eating. So I, I just want to raise that. Great point. Um, uh, that said, with our elites that have good foundational skills, great nutrition skills, um, who who have very good, strong, sound um, uh, 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 examination of their own body image. Um, yeah, this is something we we will talk to them about. And to me, body composition periodization is uh, to define it is is the the strategic and healthy approach to manipulating um, energy expenditure and energy intake, uh, so that for the majority of the year, the athletes and in, in a in a heavier or a higher uh, body composition state, and for very targeted performances of the year, we try to bring them to an individualized performance specific body composition. There's a bunch of key words in there like health. Health yeah. needs to dictate and drive this. Uh, uh, specific words around strategic. Specific words around targeted, um, and that uh, athletes. Just like they only peak in endurance sport, anyways, maybe once or twice a year, um, it it also uh, they should only be thinking about having um, performance body compositions once or twice a year. So that's that's the idea and the concept. Uh, the way this project came about, it was something in the back of my head as an intervention, probably starting 10, 15 years ago. Uh, my wife's an international level uh, middle distance athlete. Uh, we had probably 60 or 80 anthro measurements over a nine-year career, including performance outcomes, including metabolic testing, including uh, health outcomes, uh, blood work. And so it was, uh, it was pretty easy to retrospectively go back and analyze that and look at um, the fluctuations, the strategic fluctuations in her skin folds and in her um, body composition throughout, uh, throughout her career. Yeah, it was definitely fascinating to see the graphs there and the you know the highs and lows and the progressions throughout the uh, the course of her career. And you know, is this something that's more important potentially for female endurance athletes or just as important in men as well? No, I think it's equally as important. Um, three years ago, the International Olympic Committee got together and, and have reframed the the idea of around energy availability and and moved on from the concept of female athlete triad, which a, a lot of folks have heard. And there's a ton of really great science there, and we. At, at all uh, should not dismiss it and, and uh, females have very specific outcomes when it comes comes to uh, energy availability but but the new term that we use now is red s which is relative energy deficiency in sport um, it captures uh, both health and performance outcomes and captures both males and females uh, we have a publication earlier this year uh, featuring 59 world-class endurance athletes uh, 
I think probably maybe 16, 15 or 20 of them made the Rio Olympics. They're all runners or race walkers. And we studied them up in uh, Flagstaff, Arizona at an altitude camp. And in that cohort, females with amenorrhea, so lack of a normal menstrual cycle, and males in the lowest quartile of testosterone, so they weren't even clinically low, but they were just in the lowest quartile, Mm -hmm. um, had four and a half times the amount of stress fracture, uh, stress fracture rate. And so, um, yes, this is very much as much a, a, a male issue as a female issue. Um, I use the word issue. Um, uh, uh, in fact, maybe I should say gap because a gap is a gift. So if, you know, if you are amenorrheic or you are a male with lower testosterone, it's not even clinically low, but just in the lowest quartile of, of the clinical range and, and you have a history of stress fractures, there's a wonderful opportunity to correct your nutrition and, and potentially um, um, get your injury rate lower and, and get back on track. Yeah, it's uh, very well said. And uh, actually, I had Jen Saigo on uh, perhaps a month ago talking about uh, energy availability and and reds and, and sprinters. So it was really fascinating stuff as well, and sort of more power sports. But um, if we keep talking here on the on the endurance side of things, in terms of um, you know benefits from a periodized body composition approach, things around you know injury reduction, illness risk, and athletes, are there some gains to be made there potentially? Yeah, I mean. Uh, there's a whole host of, um, observational and correlation based data, um, mainly in the female athlete triad field showing, um, yeah, females with, uh, amenorrhea or, or, uh, um, lack of a normal menstrual cycle having significant increases in, in injury and illness outcomes. So, so definitely, um, um, that could be something to consider. Uh, I also think, uh, in the early 80s, um, Bosco has a couple of classic papers where over a two to three week period, he had athletes chronically wear five or 10% extra body weight and weighted vests. And so they had to walk around, they had to do everything with these weighted vests on. Okay. And, and I make very, it was like a throwaway line in, the, in this, in, in, in the body comp, nine year body comp nutrition uh, periodization paper. It's a, I couldn't, I add word count limits, but this classic work by Bosco showed just with chronic overload of weight, um, once you take the weight off, there was significant improvements in, in jump outcomes and performance outcomes um, and, and everything else. And now he, he was putting five to 10% of body weight on and, and that did come at a increased injury cost just in terms of trying to train with weighted vests. Yep. But I think that there's also a significant advantage to training eight, nine, 10 months a year three or 4% heavier, you're training your heart, your muscles, your lungs to carry that extra body weight. It's a training stimulus. And if you run 100K a week, you take 100,000 steps. Each step is three to four, a force three to four times your body weight. You add uh, two or 3% body weight on that. The total amount of neuromuscular load is significantly more. And uh, then when you periodize and, and uh, every single year, you can periodize um, um, the body composition, uh, again, an elite co- concept down for uh you you get a performance benefit just just from neuromuscular loading parameters i at least i believe it and um i think that there's a there's a benefit there as well and a lot of athletes early in their career um high school athletes might lose a lot of body weight and they see they see a performance trend benefit uh, but then they just pin themselves down there they have nowhere to go they get skinnier and skinnier and that's when you run into very significant health troubles um, instead of having a, you know, I, I say that some people, a boost of performance one time in your career, why not be way more healthier and we can periodize it for every single spring and summer, right? So, um, it, 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 it's a newer concept. There, there, there is validation that's required for this, but there's, there's a lot of, um, I think underpinning and logic to this. Um, but again, uh, it's only something that I think the elite of the elite athletes should be uh, considering with their nutrition team and with their health team and, and w- with, with a team of professionals. Definitely. Yeah. Very well said. And, um, you're right in a sense that oftentimes athletes, um, you know, pushing hard, if they want to improve body composition, well, you just keep training harder and keep reducing caloric intake drastically. And, you know, as you mentioned, it can create a lot of issues. Um, so what type of caloric reduction were you, were you aiming for during these periods and, you know, potentially what type of, of body weight loss per week was, uh, was the goal? Yeah. It's tiny and it's subtle. 
there's a couple of papers that have come out in the last two months showing how as little as three to 400 calorie mismatch within a day over a prolonged period of time also results in REDS. Um, so adverse hormonal profile, low testosterone, lack, excuse me, lack of menstrual cycle in females. And so micro periodization within day periodization of energy, um, in other words, uh, don't skip breakfast kind of kind of mentality is really important. And just 300 calories um, over a prolonged time can have that effect. And I know 300 calories doesn't sound like like much. It's it's smaller than what we can actually measure on an individual level because energy intake measurements are so so challenging. For sure. Um, and and it's you know it it could be a smoothie. And indeed, on on a one day, a one off one day, it's 300 calories is nothing. But multiply that by 365 days, and it's 110,000 calories missing over the year. It's it's about a month of eating. Wow. So when you when you flip it that way, and you say to the athlete, "Well, okay, let's not eat for the month of March," they're going to look at you like you're crazy. <laughs> for sure. But but that's what it is because it's just it's it's small, it's subtle, it's like Chinese water torture. It's just a little bit every single day, but it's it's a mismatch. And so, um, so when doing body comp optimization, I I tend to try and work with athletes in that range of of no more than three or four hundred kcals per day. Um, it's really hard to measure that. I don't even attempt it, but I'll I'll show pictures and diagrams of of different examples of what three or four hundred kcals might look like. Mm-hmm. We tr- we try to periodize it to the easier training days rather than the hard days, because on the hard days you want to perform really well in your training and you need to recover. Um, we'll use indicators like um, uh, hunger pains, um, irritability, uh, training quality. Um, as well as body weight tracking to try and help individualize and optimize that over time. And at the very most, we're only looking at maybe 0.5 to 0.8% of body weight per week. And so you do need some time to, to do this. Um, you know, usually it's six to eight weeks out from a, a, a championship season or, or a targeted, um, you know, summer season of, of racing. And, and you might start there and, and, and start to put this intervention in and try to try to work on things. Um, it's not drastic. It's subtle. Um, I will also stress though, um, at any point, if I had an athlete that has a history of, um, poor testosterone, a history of stress fractures and a history of stress fractures is two or more mm-hmm. or lack of a menstrual cycle or any indicators of, uh, disordered eating or eating disorders. Um, there's no way I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to want to work with them in this space. There's, if we just keep them uh, weight stable and healthy, they will adapt to training way better, way better. Um, they will perform way better. And, and, and so I think it's really important to think about when and where you might use this, and, but also when and where you, it's not indicated to use this. Um, when you think about energy availability, it's different than energy balance. Energy availability is energy intake minus exercise energy expenditure. And so it's two parameters that the athlete has full control over, energy intake and energy exercise energy expenditure. It does not feature BMR, thermic effect of food, or all these things that are vague notions to the athlete. So if whatever's left over after you exercise from energy intake is is what energy is available for your body to work optimally. And if there's very little left over, guess what? We, we evolved as humans. That energy is going to go to your brain and your organs. It doesn't care about your muscles. It doesn't care about making mitochondria. It doesn't care about your bones. It's just, it's going it's, it's to prioritize that little bit of energy you've left over to, to keeping you alive. And so um, th- I think there's an energy prioritization, availability prioritization uh, concept that's probably going to get a lot more research in the next few years and, and understanding how... Um, I've had athletes who, you know, a female athlete who had a menstrual cycle in three years complaining that her fingernails don't grow. And I'm like, listen, uh-huh. well, in terms of the prioritization, prioritization of energy, it's probably number 1,000 on the list, right? Definitely. So it's, yeah. So again, I'm, I'm being, it's a concept that is intriguing, but it's also, it needs to be in the right place at the right time. And I've had interventions with athletes who come in and want to talk 
body comp periodization with me. And over time, I reverse them and, and talk about just um, um, uh, health stability in terms of um, sex hormone stability. And, you know, a year or two later, they're running faster than they've ever run before because because we were able to get their health back on track. So uh, yeah. to me, uh, health trumps any and all of this. Yeah, great, great uh, point there. Definitely context so important um, in, in all of this. And, of course, just laying down those fundamentals, which, you know, even at elite levels can often be uh, sometimes lacking. So really, really great point there. And, you know, in looking at the case study, I was, it was also really intrigued because, you know, the body composition is improving, uh, the athlete's improving in leanness over time. Um, so if, we, if so, you know, circling back to the concept of periodized body composition, it's probably something an athlete's doing it in a healthy manner and has all those um, nutritional fundamentals in place. How can that actually potentially help the athlete in terms of getting leaner, you know, as the years go by in their career? Yeah, I think optimizing body composition is a, is a career project. And I've seen again and again and again, the athletes, and there, there's indirect data to support this, the athletes that have um, adequate and normal continuous sex hormones, testosterone and estrogen progesterone for females, um, because they aren't in energy deficits, they're the leanest athletes that we work with. And so um, there's a really good classic paper, uh, uh, Dutz et al., Dan Bernadotte is the senior author. It's 2001 uh, MSSE, I, I believe, off the top of my head, where they looked at world-class elite females in middle distance, long distance, rhythmic gymnastics, and just uh, classic normal gymnastics. And in that paper, they showed um, the middle distance runners were closest to energy balance, and they were the leanest athletes. The athletes, the rhythmic gymnasts on average were at a negative 600 calories per day, energy balance, and they had the highest percent body fat. And even though they were, quote unquote, probably trying the hardest to lean out. And again, evolutionary biology makes really good sense. It's only recently where we've evolved to not have um, famines <laughs> yeah. uh, as, human, as humans and actually as mammals. We're impressively good at putting on body fat to survive famines. Uh, when we go into starvation mode, uh, the body very quickly within, uh, within a week starts to shut down basal metabolic rate and starts to change the hormonal milieu and endocrine system to go into a storage mode rather than an oxidation mode. Uh, that's great for famines. Um, our modern world doesn't feature many famines anymore. So, uh, not so great for performance, right? Correct. And so the leanest athletes I have, the shredded athletes I have, they're the ones with uh, normal menstrual cycles and, and the males with, with good testosterone values and they're, they're eating five, six, seven, eight times a day, whatever's required. Um, and they get leaner and leaner as their um, careers progress right up into their thirties. And, uh, uh, I just, it, it's just, again, it's, uh, it's just a constant healthy approach to body comp. The thing to flip out of that though, as well for us as practitioners and coaches, it's really important that, to realize that you also can't judge a book by its cover because of the study I just mentioned and, and, and other data, indirect and direct, the athletes with the highest percent body fat were the ones in the largest negative calorie balance. The shredded athletes were the ones that were the most healthy. And so I'd, I've just, I've heard comments before, oh, look at that athlete. Oh, she, she must be having an eating disorder. And I'm like, you don't know that. She might be the healthiest athlete here. Exactly. And and it's just really important to not um, judge a book by its cover, to, to understand all these confounding factors um, before making rash judgments or assumptions. So I just, I'll leave it there. For sure. And then, you know, another really interesting thing in the, in the study was the ability to maintain lean muscle math, mass whilst getting leaner. And, you know, as you noted, the mid-thigh girth during the competition phases, um, being able to maintain that and obviously... Does that translate to performance? Is that um, just a, a, an end result of being able to do this um, you know, really well and taking all that time to be periodizing this appropriately? Yeah, correct. Uh, you know, a lot of textbooks talk about the fact that um, if you're leaning out or losing body weight, you can't concurrently add muscle mass. And, and a lot of times uh, textbooks are 10 to 15 years behind because um, – 
that that is not true, especially in the elite of elite athletes who are in extreme training environments. And the first paper to really definitively disprove that um, was, was this Sam Mettler um, with Kevin Tipton, a protein expert uh, at the time at a Birmingham, England, where they showed uh, um, slightly higher protein intakes and strategic use of protein throughout the day, along with um, quite aggressive strength and conditioning and, and training program, while in a pretty profound caloric deficit, re- resulted in subjects that lost 5% of their body weight, but in the high protein group, concurrently added muscle mass. And uh, again, that defies most test textbook logic or what textbooks have. Um, but uh, any of us in the field, we've seen that. And uh, there's now you know a series of papers that have come out. Uh, Ina Garth, for example, out of Norway, has some great papers in this area showing that, yeah, in the elite athletes with pretty aggressive training programs and uh, an increase uh, in, in protein intake when leaning out can really help maintain muscle mass and in some situations even gain muscle mass. Uh, another key element of, of my, um, the nine-year case study um, was that um, the, the general competition body weight, uh, competition phase body weight um, uh, for Hillary, uh, f- for the subject in, in, in this study was was completely unchanged throughout her career. Uh, however, the partitioning of that changed um, throughout her career in that nine years earlier, um, uh, the body weight was still around 46, 46 and a half kilos. Um, she's very short, just, just to put that in perspective. <laughs> um, world-class endurance athletes are, are incredibly petite. Um, but nine years later, she was the same body weight but had an extra kilo of muscle mass on her. It's um, amazing. So she was leaner than ever. And most of that was our return from Switzerland here to uh, the Canadian Sport Institute Pacific, where she was able to get on a proper, um, with a proper SNC coach. Uh, I was writing her SNC program in Switzerland, and I, I, I'm an endurance guy. I, it was a program that just kept her healthy, and it did, but it was not a performance uh, program. And um, it was phenomenal to see late in her career, well into her 30s, um, after a child. Uh, her still putting on lean muscle mass and running better than ever. So, um, yeah, there's lots of uh, lots of lessons out of that case study. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic read, and uh, definitely include that in the show notes here. And uh, definitely want to respect your time here as well, Trent. Really appreciate you taking the time today. And if if we maybe we shift back out, you know, just kind of thirty thousand feet for for the recreational marathon. Or so a lot of the you know trainers or nutritionists or even docs listening in, you know, will often see clients who are you know want to run a marathon to maybe improve their health, but they often have you know. 10, 15, 20 pounds that they're also trying to lose during that event. Um, and sometimes their fueling strategy can look a lot like uh, Chip Choge's or an elite runner versus someone who's actually also trying to lose weight. Can you talk a little bit about the metabolic cost of running with, with extra body weight and maybe some of the nuances on fueling strategies there? Yeah, certainly. I, I think, um, yeah, I think there's misconceptions that um, everything the elites do, uh, if I'm a four-hour marathoner, I should do. So um, first and foremost, um, in running specifically, running is a weight-dependent endurance sport. It's not like rowing or swimming or cycling where uh, your weight's supported by either either the water or some piece of equipment. So your risk for joint and or bone or neuromuscular overload is much greater in running than, than in the other sports. And and that's primarily why, um, triathletes and rowers and cyclists can do a 25 to 30 hour training week. But even your top Kenyan marathoners can only run physically run in terms of their neuromuscular and joints and, and muscles 10 to 12 hours a week. So that's, that's point number one when you, and then if, if you're, if you're profoundly overweight, that puts a lot more stress on the joints and, and everything else. So those joints can handle it. But it's really important in the training program to take things incredibly slow early. I see way too many recreational runners uh, wanting to check the marathon box um, within a few months of starting a running program. And I think that there's certain high throughput running classes that overemphasize the marathon way too quickly. And people hate it. They get broken. They get injured. They limp through their marathon. Um, They can brag about it at the water cooler on Monday but they hate running and that's it. They'd never go back to it. Um, if you're, 
yeah, if you're 20, 30 pounds overweight and you want to get into running, um, a marathon is something you might consider in four to five years. And from a neuromuscular perspective of just slowly loading the joints, you might just start with a whole bunch of hiking uphill and downhill. Then you might start into some, like a little bit of running with hiking. Then you might start to get into some workouts with hiking. And guess what will happen? Your body weight will come down safely. You won't, you won't, you have much lower injury rates. Um, most of our society, unfortunately, is not patient enough to do those types of things. And they, you know, they want to take the 16 week marathon program and, and, and have a holiday to New York. Right. So, sure. so that's step one from a neuromuscular perspective. And, and, you know, I, at that point, feelings are relevant. You're going so slow that 100% of fueling can be achieved by um, um, uh, carbohydrate and fat that you've stored in your body. Um, even a very lean individual has enough body fat energy for about 20 to 25 marathons in a row. And when exercise intensity is that low and it's more hiking or very slow running, um, you, you don't need any fueling at that point. You don't need to be sucking back carbs. You need water. Hydration is still important. Definitely. Um, but, but it's just, it's way overdone. The very pointy end of things, you know, after three or four years and your body comp's gotten back down into a place that's good and you can survive two hour long runs and you, you, you're then at the point where you think you're going to start your first marathon. Um, yes, some fueling during that marathon will be important. And yes, practicing that um, will help you get through the marathon. Um, that says you probably need about half the amounts per hour that the elite athlete does. So, you know, maybe a gel or two gels an hour, no, no more than that, because, because you're moving at a much slower rate, um, you have a much higher dependence on fat oxidation, and uh, therefore you don't need near as much um, external carbohydrate to support the race distance. The other thing I would recommend in this space as being a marathon coach as well, or, or part-time, I dabble, Nice. Is that I think that there's diminishing returns um, once you get out past about two and a half to three hour long runs. Um, the elites don't do that because, you know, they can run a marathon in a long run in two and a half hours and it's pretty easy for them. Very few elites run past two and a half hours of duration. Um, however, if your goal marathon is four to five hours, <laughs> um, there's a gap. And so what I usually recommend there, and it's more from a psychological perspective, is that a few times in the build, if you have a four or five hour marathon goal, uh, get outside, um, do your two to three hour long run, but then tack on two hours of walking. So that psychologically, you, you've had a few four or five hour bouts outside, just from a headspace perspective, and For then sure. on race day... You're standing on the starting line. You've done it a couple of times, albeit maybe with 20 or 25% of your long run is walking, but you've, you've done a, a few four or five hour bouts, but in those bouts, you're only running for two and a half to three hours. And, and I think, again, from a neuromuscular perspective, it's safer. You won't get as, won't lower your risk of injury. You'll recover better out of those long runs. Um, but psychologically, you're still ready on race day to handle um, four or five hours out on the course. So. That's a long answer, but uh, hopefully it, your listeners um, yeah, can get some value out of that. Absolutely. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic uh, advice and insights there, Trent. Really, really appreciate it. And um, last question for you here before we let you go. The men's marathon breaking the two-hour mark. Is this a real possibility? And you know, is there a certain innovation where we might potentially see this coming from to support that goal? Yeah, yeah. Five years ago, I probably would have stated on a podcast like this that I, uh, we would be hard-pressed to see a sub-202 in the next 25 years, and here we are at 201.39. Um, that was the biggest improvement on marathon performance in about 50 years. It was one Amazing. of the most insane marathon outcomes in the era of diminishing returns. And we're still a minute and 39 seconds off the two hours. And he he only, I think he took a minute and uh, 20, about the same amount he took off uh, the old world record. So I still think we're a stretch away from a sub two. I think we need to see 57, 
low half marathons and the world record right now is 57 minutes high before we start to see a sub two. Um, but, but I now will say, and I probably wouldn't have said it five years ago. Um, I, I think I'll see it in my life lifetime. Um, the innovations for me have, have come in shoe design. They've come in fueling. Uh, they've come in, in, in training insights and they've, they've come in, um, in appreciation uh, of drafting. The IAAF has put uh, and is considering putting more rules in place around shoe design. Uh, what, you know, the, what, so for a few years ago, there was these shoes with springs in the heel that were outlawed. <laughs> <laughs> okay. There was too much energy return on those. Um, I, I, there's talk about them putting more strict rules in place around shoe design because of the, the Nike vapor flies, yes, do improve running economy and by about 4%. Now, uh, that published paper was done in um, what I'll say are national class runners. Um, you're never going to get a four percent improvement in running economy in Kipchoge. You're just you're you're too close to the ceiling there. For sure. Uh, but even a one or two percent is 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 a couple of minutes for him. Um, and then I think the other thing within the rules of sport that could be done better and and should have been done yesterday in Berlin is is the drafting component. Um, there's no reason why you couldn't have 20 drafters at the start of the race. There's nothing in the rules to prevent that. And by that, what I mean is perhaps there's some of the drafters only get to 5K and they drop out. And then some only get to 10K and drop out. And some just get to 20K. But you have drafters. You have rabbits for the rabbits. Because there's only a handful of people that can bring Kipchoge to 30 or 35K. Um, no Canadian can. But a Canadian could bring him to the... 15k mark and um and i think just having him tucked in the back completely out of any wind draft and then and then helping having rabbits help draft the really key rabbits so that they have energy past 25 and 30k to push the pace um i do think there's another 60 seconds right there um maybe 30 seconds 30 to 60 seconds right there that that could have taken his time off of berlin yesterday I just think with better rabbits, he he might have been two hundred one low. So incredible. So yeah, maybe I'm contradicting myself, but uh, um, I do think I'll see it my life lifetime. But I still think we're um, we're uh, yeah, a little ways 10, away yet. Ten twenty years away, but I I don't know. I've been blown away in the last three years by Kipchoge and these this this you know breaking two and uh, now the Berlin yesterday. So. Awesome. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll leave my hat on this one. We'll see. <laughs> Fantastic, Trent. Well, listen, I really appreciate it. again you taking the time out today. Um, where can people stay connected with you and keep up with all your phenomenal research? Yeah, just follow on Twitter, I guess. I'm usually pretty active there, and that's probably the best spot. Beautiful. We'll definitely include uh, that link and the links to the papers discussed here in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Uh, thanks again for everyone else tuning in. If you have any questions for Trent or want to leave a comment on today's episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at drbubs. And of course, if you enjoyed the show, take a few minutes, subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Thanks again and see you guys all next week. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.